ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you would like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash seansrussiablog or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. So it turns out I'm currently teaching a class on Russian revolutionary movements at the University of Pittsburgh, and revolutionary terrorism is a persistent topic and theme. Just to give you a sense of how prevalent terrorist activity was in the early 20th century in Russia, here are some numbers. From January 1908 to May 1910, Russian authorities recorded 19,957 terrorist acts and revolutionary robberies in the Russian Empire. Their victims included killing 732 government officials and 3,051 private citizens, and wounding 1,022 officials and 2,829 citizens. In a 36-month period, Russian revolutionaries were responsible for killing or wounding 7,634 people. So what did terrorism mean to the terrorist? I turn to Irina Meyer for some answers. Irina Meyer is a lecturer in Russian in the Department of Foreign Languages and Literatures at the University of New Mexico, where her research focuses on the development of Russian terrorism from the second half of the 19th century through the 21st century, and the birth of the modern terrorist in the Russian revolutionary period. In her work, she explores the philosophical contexts in which terrorism exists today, traces the development of terrorist self-representation, and examines Russian terrorism from the angle of cultural studies. Her dissertation is titled, Evil Men Have No Songs, The Terrorist and Literature Boris Savinkov, 1879-1925. Here's Irina Meyer. You know, you're dealing with such a really interesting topic, um, revolutionary terrorism in Russia in the latter part of the 19th century. So I thought we'd start by just having you talk about, like, what, what drew you to this topic, your your interest in Boris Savinkov and, and literature in Russian terrorism? Well, you know, um, first time I encountered the name of Boris Savinkov, a long time ago, actually, back in the ninth grade in high school, when my history teacher just, you know, briefly mentioned him. And and then sometime later, I found, actually found a book, uh, Memoirs of a Terrorist, in my parents' home library. So, yeah, so I, I, I read it and I found it, you know, very interesting. But, you know, back then I was just a high school student, so I, I really didn't, you know, didn't go, didn't go further than that. So next time I again heard his name during my doctoral studies uh, in the context of like modernism, Russian modernism. And uh, what drew me to, to, his, to him again is 
this kind of multiple dimensions of the Russian terrorism. So I was I was just really intrigued by the Russian terrorists who killed others, died themselves, as they claimed, out of love. So, um, you know, to, to vaguely remember Dostoevsky's quote, I'm probably misquoting him, but, um, you know, that, that they... Um, uh, people committed loathsome deeds without being loathsome people at all. So, so this kind of idea is what what got me interested, and also um, the fact that you know because of this lack of any sort of material gain and because of the personal sacrifice that they were making, uh, terrorism was even considered something noble. Um, so, so. Terrorism was not marginalized as it is today, for example. Um, and the reason why it wasn't is because of this um, morality, in a way, you know, this moral code of honor uh, that social revolutionaries claimed they had. So it was interesting how, you know, the, the, a lot of members of the Russian intelligentsia also supported revolutionary violence, right? So so they, they, they helped the terrorists um, not only kind of create this new language of radicalism, but also create like a language of values, a language of morality in a way, um, by, by, you know, by, by supporting their, their view that murder can be justified and you know, can be even purifying because of this element of sacri sacrifice. You know? So they, we have this interesting mix of you know, life and um, art, I guess. So talk talk a bit about who uh, Boris Savinkov was and and when place him within the the Russian revolutionary movement. He was a social revolutionary terrorist mastermind who planned um, several of the biggest political assassinations of the time, and I would even call him a sort of you know Bin Laden of the revolutionary Russia. Who uh, who wrote poetry and prose? Um, so he. Uh, what's another interesting thing about him is that he actually never threw a bomb himself. So despite this fact, he was still mm, like his works are filled with this remorse, you know, this uh, torments of you know Christian sinner, and at the same time, like self admiration of a cold blooded killer. Savinkov. So he socialized, he was hanging out with a lot of like bright minds of, of his time, both in Russia and abroad. So like he knew, um, you know, he was friends with Mirishkovsky, uh, Gipius, he was, uh, he knew Churchill, he knew Mussolini. Uh, so a lot of, a lot of, you know, famous, famous uh, writers and politicians too. Another interesting thing about Savinkov is that he, he for for a few months he turned from a terrorist into a statesman. So the, uh, under under the provisional government, uh, he became a deputy war minister for for a few months until he fell out of grace with uh, with Kerensky and was fired. I always found that an interesting twist on his his you know political career that he lands in the provisional government uh, working in the Ministry of War. But he was, you know, he was a member of the Socialist Revolutionary Combat Organization. Um, so talk talk about like because this is an, an interesting moment in the Russian revolutionary movement because, you know, we have the early period of terrorism, which is Nordnaya Volia, 
the the attempts on Alexander II, you know, from Karakozov to Narodnaya Volia, and then they're finally successful. And then terrorism kind of ebbs for for a decade or so. Uh, and then it makes a big comeback, particularly with the SRs. So, what is the what is the combat organization, and where does he fit in, into that? Well, um, they are the the successor of Narodnaya Volia in a way. Um, so, the combat organization is interesting because mm, you know they were created within the Social Revolutionary Party, but then um, after the October Manifesto, we see this split. Um, you know this disillusionment between uh, the the um, you know the executive committee of the Social Revolutionary Party and the combat organization because um, the October Manifesto um, kind of gave hope for some sort of parliamentary maybe possibility of parliamentary negotiations, but the combat organization thought that you know we should never kind of stop terrorism you know and you should never cease terrorist acts so um i think people who were part of the combat organization they really thought that they were the ones who were doing the real revolution you know instead of just talking they actually are acting um so it's very interesting because and i think it's true for savinkov specifically is that for them terrorism was not a catalyst to you know accelerate reforms something that you know it was for for a lot of people but it was actually a a a you know an end in itself so what was the and this this goes to the other issue like to talk about uh terrorism within the russian revolutionary movement more broadly because the early you know Narodnaya Volia and in those years in the 70s the idea was uh, you know, it's a very naive idea that if you assassinate the Tsar, then this would provoke some sort of, you know, popular uprising, right? And so what is so what is the point of terror? And then there's, of course, you have people like Vera Zasulich, who, you know, her her act of, of, of shooting um, the St. Petersburg governor Trepov is, is pretty much like an act of revenge. So so what place did terrorism play for? What was the, the point of it for people like Savinkov and the SR combat organization? Well, people really truly thought that um, that they could change, you know, they could start uh, the process, right, the revolutionary process in the country by, you know, through the terrorist acts. So, so in a way, it was a um, like it was a sign of despair, right? It really, it really exposed um, the failure of the of the social structures. So, after the going to people movement failed. This is what you know. A lot of former populists uh, turn to, and um, but you know, if we are talking about the roots of of Russian terrorism, I would go even a little bit further, and and again, I would I would agree with Dostoevsky here, and I would say that the the seeds for Russian terrorism uh, were planted in the Russian nihilism, because because you know this is when the ter- this is when terrorism started in this. In this attempts to, you know, deconstruct, negate the existing values, and then it just, um, you know, developed more and more. So yeah, so this is what where I think it was coming from, and I think also another interesting point about the, you know, the way I guess how Russian the Russian terrorism developed, is how many women joined yeah. terrorist organizations at the time. So because by the by eighteen uh, seventies women had access to higher education. Uh, 
but they had very limited access to professional opportunities. So they were still expected to be, you know, housewife, mothers, right, wives. So they saw terrorism as this opportunity to realize their, their professional ambitions. Right. And because many of them uh, studied, studied medicine, the uh, terrorist organizations could employ them as chemists to make bombs. Yeah, this is one of an interesting sociological aspect to Narodnaya Volia. I think uh, out of the, the executive committee, it had 31 members. I think a third of that, about 11, were women. Um, and, and women were really kind of, well, not overrepresented in the revolutionary movement. But in when you compare it to, say, the Russian revolu revolutionary movement to Europe, there are far higher presence of women in the Russian um uh, movement than, than in the West, which is, you know, kind of counterintuitive. Yeah, yeah, I think it's very interesting. I, I think me, women really saw, you know, because uh, terrorist organizations were not as, I guess, not as solid social structures as, you know, something outside. Women saw kind of more flexibility and fluidity with this terrorist movement. But, but you know, what is ironic, though, that even within terrorist organizations, women still very rarely took, um, like, leading, you know, like, um, uh, leading positions. So it was still mostly men, and women were still doing, you know, organizational things or secretarial things and stuff like that. So, so again, like, so what was, so terrorism for that first generation was this idea of negating, this nihilist negation. Uh, so what was it for Sabinkov? What did terrorism mean for him? Well, I think um, it's, it's very interesting, actually, because he, I think Sabinkov was really drawn to violence. Uh, and he, I think he was a terrorist first and writer second. Um, because, you know, when, even when he describing, even when he's describing his mm, kind of process of recruitment in the combat, uh, into the co combat organization, he says that he felt, you know, psychologically predisposed to do terrorist work. So, so for him, I think it wasn't just a catalyst to speed up the reforms. So it was his life. It was his, you know, like somehow he flourished in this, in this lifestyle, um, you know, because because even after terrorism kind of fades away and you know kind of subsides, uh, and World War One starts, he chooses to go and you know fight um, just to kind of feel this rush again. Right. He goes to France and he actually joins the French military. That's right. Exactly. Yeah, and it's very interesting actually the similarity with which he describes you know, his terrorist acts and, uh, you know, his battles uh, during World War One. So it's, um, it's a very kind of, he, he in a way ridicules uh, death, you know, and, and what's happening because, you know, when he describes, um, uh, like in The Pale Horse, when he, he describes uh, work in terrorism, he calls, he calls it a puppet theater. And when he describes blood, he calls it cranberry juice and then and then when he is a soldier in world war one he talks about you know fallen soldiers and he's he says that they're like a toy soldiers 
So what is what is the what do you how do you interpret this? Because this is something that you do address, and that is the aesthetics of death that he gives in his writing. So how do you interpret these aesthetics and this kind of almost making it into these images of horror and gore into basically kind of game? Well, um, I think that you know he constantly, I think he constantly tried to negotiate his monstrosity and his humanity. You know, and we especially see that in um, the hunting scene in the pale horse, you know, when he shoots a hare and and um, he, you know, he talks about the fact that that the the, uh, the fact that he killed the, the he, he killed the hare, that he took his life didn't arouse pretty much any emotion in him. But the the sound of his scream is is this what bothers bothered him and he repeats the same imagery in many of his other works so this he calls it like the scream of a hare even when he talks about people dying so 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 in 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 his works he i think is trying to recreate um this you know the, the recreate death aesthetically so he tries to I think contain his own duality, you know, being a monster and being uh, still a human. So he tries to stay in control of it, um, maybe prevent this this kind of paradox from destroying him. Um, so I think this is this is why he he kind of plays with death, you know, because it's so essential for both sides of him. So so on one hand, he's this cold-blooded murderer, you know, like a wannabe Ubermensch who tries to you know, achieve immortality in a way. And on the other hand, he's, you know, this Christian sinner who is looking for redemption, for salvation. So so for both of his sides, um, death really, you know, is essential in, sen- in the center of, of, of everything. So, so in a way, I think he kind of like evokes maybe Nietzsche and lightness of being, you know, to just survive through death you know like survive this experience and you mean survive in the sense of like martyrdom and remembrance well yeah yeah i think kind of to try to reconcile um you know the 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 two completely opposite sides of himself i think that's that's the reason why he i think is in a way jealous of uh vanya the character of Vani in the Pale Horse, who I think he sees as a as an ideal terrorist, because he does not does not have this type of torments, you know, in him. He really he really came to the harmony in himself that you know that he's going for a murder because out of love, you know, and that he does it out of um, kind of you know Christian Christian love. Yeah, talk. You know, Savinkov does write this this trilogy, really, of his revolutionary life: um, the Pale Horse, and then his memoir, Memoirs of a Terrorist, and then the last volume, the Black Horse. And you know, as you as you know and talk about, um, there is this interesting literary tradition around Russian terrorism. I mean, Dostoevsky being a very good, you know, one of the preeminent examples of that. I mean, his trilogy of crime and punishment and demons and Brothers Brothers Karamazov, in a sense, are also dealing with this kind of question of revolutionary violence. So talk a bit about his, his literary and memoir works and how this fits into these questions of how he's trying to reconcile himself or narrate himself in terms of terrorism. 
Mm -hmm. So, well, uh, the the memoirs of a terrorist. Um, this is not a part of trilogy. Ah, so okay. that's separate, right? So, so yeah. So the trilogy is the pale horse, then um, an unnamed manuscript, which I actually absolutely accidentally discovered when I went to Moscow uh, to work in archives. And I was just like, I almost screamed at the library when I found it because I was like, oh my God, that's awesome. <laughs> so, and it was published only in, um, I believe in 1993 or 1994 for the first time. So, um, so we don't even know, you know, its name or was it supposed to be published or not. So, um, so yeah, but it's the second part. So the Pale Horse first part, uh, the, this unnamed manuscript, the second and the Black Horse is the third. But um, Memoirs of a Terrorist was published first. So, and it's more of a kind of historiographic, I would say, record, more of like a matter of fact narrative, you know, in comparison with the trilogy, um, even though also fictionalized, right? All his works are semi-biographical, but still fictional. So in Memoirs of a Terrorist, he gives us more of a, you know, just an insight into the terrorist organizations, um, reasons for, you know, why people decide to join, uh, some portraits of, the, of terrorists, stuff like that. And the trilogy is way more philosophical, way more psychological. It's, it's much darker because he shows this moral struggle behind, behind terrorism. Um, struggle that is, you know, combined with, say, feelings of camaraderie, something that was very, very important for Savinkov. Um, feelings of, you know, personal doubt, feelings of disillusionment, um, maybe even, you know, some sort of like moral, moral deficiency of, of terrorism, uh, both as, you know, political means of struggle and as um, like philosophic doctrine. The the other thing that one of the things you point out, and I, this is another theme that I think goes throughout revolutionary terrorism in Russia in general, and perhaps in terrorism in general as such, and that is that terrorists work according to a notion of um, the revolutionary apocalypse or some sense of eschatological time, like the, the terrorist act is supposed to speed up time is supposed to speed up that journey to the the great day of the revolution so what role did these religious discourses play in you know Savinkov and others understanding of themselves as revolutionary you know act uh, how they understood their revolutionary activities well the turn of the 19th you know to the 20th century was just this very ideologically and you know intellectually charged time and space, you know, in Russia. And um, we see this development of strong apocalyptic tradition uh, because the Russian intelligentsia felt very frustrated with, you know, centuries of oppressive Tsarism and with also with the Orthodox Church that historically supported the Tsar. Um, so Zinaida Gipius and Dmitry Merishkovsky, who considered themselves, you know, the conscience and mind of the, of current Russia, they saw well. They they declare the Tsar to be the anti the Antichrist, and they call for the you know the sacred fight against the Tsar, against the Tsarism, against the regime. So 
And Savinkov was, you know, very close to to um, to Mirishkovsky and Gipius, and other social revolutionaries were close to them too. And Gipius was in fact convinced that that all social revolutionaries were already Christians, like in inside, right, subconsciously, and that what they really needed was to help was was help to um, to bring this faith you know, this Christianity, this like latent Christianity to the surface. So they needed to, they needed something that would help them reconcile their Christian faith with their life choices, you know, with their terrorism. So this is how they came up with this idea of revolutionary Christianity that, that was, you know, that would provide, um, you know, some sort of philosophical religious foundation for, for terrorism. And, and Gippius was the one who claimed that that terrorism uh, was well that murder was terrorists' cross to bear. So so we see we definitely see this idea in Savinkov's work, uh, the pale horse, right again th through the character of Vanya. So he he ha he's expressing this you know this type of thinking. Um, so so terrorists and the intelligentsia looked at uh, radicalism as yeah something that would help them speed up the upcoming revolution that was supposed to happen anyway right like they saw the revolution as as this apocalypse the time when russia would cleanse itself of the scenes uh, and emerge as this new um new spiritual center of the world so this 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 uh, capital of renewed spirituality, you know, the third Rome. So Savinkov is definitely also obsessed with these ideas because we see, you know, four horsemen of apoc apocalypse in his works. Uh, we see, you know, this cleansing fire um, constantly reappearing, you know, in his um, in his works. So things like that. So we definitely we definitely see uh, the influences of of revolutionary Christianity. And this is also, as you point out, too, the um, in their kind of his meditations on issues of truth, that is representing the true people or the narod, the issues of love, love for the people, and also the fact that they are, they see themselves as martyrs. So how does this kind of discourse also fit into this kind of Christian revolutionary uh, mentality? Yeah, well, uh, self-sacrifice is what, you know, what they believed it was necessary because this is how you would cleanse yourself of the of the sin right of the murder that you committed so um so they definitely you know use this concept of martyrdom um and as for love and truth so the necessity to redefine these terms uh emerged with this traditional belief that russian peasants were the foundation the true foundation of the russian society so the true God-bearer, Narod uh, Baganosets, right? So because, because, you know, Russian peasants lived in the countryside, they were too far away from corruptive, you know, co corrupted uh, higher society. So they were able to preserve God's truths, right? Like humility, kindness, sense of justice, right? Everything that, you know, a true Christian is supposed to possess. So, so the conflict was in this level of poverty, uh, that the God bearers had to endure. So while, while the Tsar, 
who was you know, an anointed of God on earth and the official Orthodox Church were in much, much better condition, right? much more comfortable. So, so this disparity emerged as the new truth. And um, the rational foundation for terrorism beca became um, these principles of utilitarianism, uh, that, that violence was serving the majority of people and it was serving for a better end goal, well, supposedly. So, but of course, you know, this, this utilitarianism was also heavily criticized by a lot of people. Um, like Berdyai, for example, was saying that in search for, for people's happiness, in search for Pravda, the Russian intelligentsia actually lost its sense of istina, which, you know, he saw as philosophical and ultimate truth, right? Because in the Russian, we have two words for truth, right? Pravda, which is, you know, can be seen as a perspective, and istina, which is which traditionally is like God's truth. Right. It's like a foundational exactly. universal truth. Um, and does it, I mean, this again, this seems to, so much of this seems to echo, you know, some of the things that Dostoevsky was writing about too in, in, his, in Demons, for example, that the, the generation of the nihilist or the generation of the Nrodniki had lost this, uh, they've replaced that, that inner truth or that fundamental truth with rationality. Right. This is, so is this, do you see this as a tradition that continues this kind of constantly, um, you know, this discourse of, of thinking about terrorism? Does this, this dichotomy between continue from this similar problem that Dostoevsky was trying to deal with? Oh, I think absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I think it's like, it's just really fascinating how terrorists were twisting um like the concepts, like different concepts, you know, even the concept of like Christian love, right? So if um, if we think of another work by Dostoevsky, you know, the brothers Karamazov and his character of Smirdikov, um, so Vanya says, Vanya, Vanya is convinced that this, that Christian love is what distinguishes him from Smirdikov. So the fact that he's committing murder out of love distinguishes, you know, his killing from, like senseless violence of Smirnikov, right. which is, you know, of course, it's a very idealistic, very, um, you know, not not very rational <laughs> rational thinking, <laughs> but but he really saw this, you know, as a clear connection between, uh, you know, Jesus Christ who died on the cross out of love for humankind and and terrorists who are dying for the common people out of love again, out of Christian love. At one point, you write that, and you you you're dealing with the uh, the kind of myth making um, and the of people like uh, Maria Spiridonova and Boris Savinkov. And at one point, you write that um, Spiridonova and Boris Savinkov created a modern revolutionary subject, while also being created as a literary one. Uh, what do you mean by this? Well, um, so on one hand, they were the creators of their own, their own myths, their own stories, because, you know, Savinkov wrote books and poetry and Spiridonova narrated her own story through letters that she wrote uh, from jail after, after her arrest. Um, but they also, because they were so famous, because they were, you know, this celebrities of their time, uh, Savinkov became um, a prototype for a lot of characters in, you know, a number of novels, like, Probably the most famous one is Andrei Bailey's Petersburg. 
So Dudkin, the terrorist Dudkin, uh, Savinkov was a prototype for this character. And uh, Spiridonova also was an inspiration for a number of different stories and, you know, poems. Um, like, for example, Voloshin, Voloshin's poem, Seagull, um, that he devoted to Spiridonova. And he described her in this poem as this fragile but very strong-willed bird who sacrifices herself. Again, like Jesus Christ sacrificed himself. Um, so Spiridonova was actually known as the social revolutionary blessed virgin. So she had this, um, you know, image of um, like sanctity attached to her. Um, and, you know, what's interesting actually is that Voloshin also wrote a poem about Savinkov. Uh, where, where he compared him to, well, he called him actually a, a big dull moose with a cross between the horns. So to, to which Savinkov, uh, you know, responded that he really enjoyed the poem, that it was really nice, but he didn't understand what connection the moose had to him, <laughs> which is interesting because he couldn't, you know, he couldn't see this image of, you know, um, Savinkov's destiny to save Russia. What this is what Voloshin was trying to express, right? That Savinkov is predestined to save Russia, um, but Savinkov, I guess, didn't didn't think of it as as such. Um, but it's it's actually really interesting how you know how 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 interested people were with even the smallest details about terrorists. You know, like like I already mentioned, you know, they were really like celebrities of the time so people were interested in you know some small details like spiridonova's hairstyle while she was in jail you know things like that um well and sometimes you know the myth would really spin out of control spun out of control um like spiridonova when she would be writing her her uh, letters she mentioned that she was delirious um you know many times throughout her arrest so and she kind of mentioned some sort of sexual you know sexual harassment from the from from the from the officers so people well some journalists i think um they wrote that not only was she raped but she also was inflicted with um infected with syphilis so which you know she then had to write another letter uh you know disproving that saying this is not true you know i'm fine um all that stuff you know you mentioned this earlier but i i think it deserves more um uh attention because the the terrorist today is such a reviled you know figure in the sense of it's a it's it there's a reluctance to even you know speak of the terrorist as having any humanity but in the in this Russian case, I mean, as you said, they're celebrities. I mean, when Vera Zasulich gets acquitted in in, in eighteen seventy eight, she becomes like a, a an icon, uh, and these and these others, um, you know, even even the liberal uh, liberal um, politicians in Russia have even a, a bit of a soft spot for these revolutionaries. So what what do you what is attractive about the terrorist at this point in, in Russian culture? You know, I think, I think mainly, um, mainly it's just this really kind of discourse that, that the terrorists were acting for the people, you know, um, 
that because you know like myth myth making starts with with a name right with an with a label so you can call someone a terrorist and it already starts one type of narrative and then you can call someone a martyr or a freedom fighter and it starts an absolutely different narrative right so so if you add this element of heroism around a terrorist act um for some it gains this meaning of not only something justifiable, redeemable, but even something like preordained, right? Something inevitable in a way. So, so I think because of the kind of cultural and philosophical discourses that existed in the, in the society at the time, you know, the way how people felt about... Um, you know, changes and about the life that people lived in. Um, the, the myths that were surrounding the images of terrorists at the time not only defined their social status, right, like social legitimacy, but also kind of gave the, the moral value to them. That's, it's really fascinating. I mean, this is something uh, I'm, in terms of my class, um, that I'm dealing with, it, it repeatedly comes up where, you know, the terrorist is this really, I mean, it does get the imagery of, because so many of Russian intellectuals are producing or in dialogue with the, these acts, um, it does produce a sense of kind of a, a philosophical issue more than just a form of political, you know, violence. Well, you know, sometimes I really wonder, like, if... How would the discourse of terrorism today be different if we had more access, or at least if people would be more willing to um, to study the intellectual context in which you know terrorism exists today, right? Because because when I was um, when I was doing my res research and I read this this article from uh, the New Yorker. Uh, that was called Battle Lines, and it was talking about jihadi poetry today. And, and I mean, the article itself was fascinating, but for me, what was even more fascinating is the, the comments of people to the article. You know, they were completely outraged that this article was even published, you know, because, because that would somehow imply that, well, terrorists have humanity. You know, terrorists are people. Terrorists can create something, you know, intellectually sophisticated. You know, um, which is, you know, which is another reason why I I study this topic. This is this is another reason, another thing that drew me to this topic is is because I think we can learn so much more about terrorism if we don't um, if we're not afraid to step into the you know, the human, the human zone, you know, of terrorism. Yeah. And, and this goes to my final question. Like, how would you place, given the thick, this, the various, you know, ways Russian terrorism was addressed at the time in the latter half of the 19th century and into the early 20th century, where would you place the phenomenon of Russian terrorism in the history of terrorism more generally? I think, um, of course, even though, you know, modern terrorism are, way better equipped, way better funded, um, way more globally connected. Um, I think that if we look at like the most basic organizational structures within terrorist groups today, we can still recognize 
the patterns from people's will, for example. Yeah. So like including, you know, the division into cells, the fact that, you know, all the cells would have to like function separately, mm-hmm. you know, to, to prevent infiltration and all that stuff. So, so uh, organizational structures are definitely very similar. And also, you know, the philosophical concepts of, you know, love, truth, martyrdom, they're, they're, still, they're still used very widely yeah. by, the, by the terrorists to, to try to justify, um, justify murders, right? And we, mm-hmm. see, we still see this idea of, you know, repaying the debt, um, continuing the common cause, um, well, even building a new world, right? Yes. Like Islamic, Islamic uh, uh, terrorism proclaims, uh, you know, that they're building a, a new caliphate, right? right? right. It's, it's very similar to like a third, third Rome, right? Like a third Russia that, that Savinkov is talking about in his works as well. Right. And also the issues of martyrdom of like, mar- the, you know, creating the memory and commemoration of the terrorist within say palestinians or amongst hamas and all these other organizations exactly well and that's why they they spend so much effort um uh like in preserving the memory of of those of like fallen terrorists um you know and this is the reason we also see back in the revolutionary russia we see that you know all the people who were uh like executed for example by the tsarist regime people write stories about them and novels and poetry Right. So again, the same the same thing, like that the the continuity of the tradition, right? Preserving the the, the cultural memory of those people. That was Irina Meyer, a lecturer in the Department of Foreign Languages and Literatures at the University of New Mexico, where her research focuses on the development of Russian terrorism from the second half of the nineteenth century through the twenty first century, and the birth of the modern terrorist in the Russian Revolutionary Period. Her dissertation is titled, Evil Men Have No Songs, The Terrorist and Literature, Boris Savinkov, 1879-1925. I'm your host, Sean Gillery, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye.
Watch out, see.